0: This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we find our understanding of divorce challenged by Jesus and an ancient discussion taking place between the rabbis about the importance and value of people. Let's see if we can get through the 19th chapter of Matthew today, Mr. Brent. Another blockbuster-like episode, perhaps.
1: Well, we're going to hope it's not quite as long, but we're going to see how it goes.
0: Good stuff in today's episode, though. All right. A little tricky thing to cover, but why don't you just dive right in? All right. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, so Jesus ends up
1: being challenged on the issue of divorce. Now, we say challenged, and that's... We should point out here it says that the Perushim, the Pharisees, came to test Jesus. Now, sometimes there is a test where they are actually trying to trap Jesus. Oftentimes this is a collaboration between the Sadducees, the Zadukim, and the Perushim, and they're working together to try to trap Jesus for the purpose of condemning him, possibly executing him, getting rid of him, whatever you wanna however you want to word that. But then there are just there's just the rabbinical um, art of engaging in critical thought. It's potential. There's a potential here that the Pharisees are just simply wanting to test Jesus. He's been creating some waves and this guy didn't have his PhD from Harvard and he's working, he's kind of coloring outside the lines. And so they come to test him. Now they test him with one, I think we've mentioned it before, Brent, we've talked about the eight great debates. There were eight big debates that the rabbinical world was having and those debates were, um, it was the discussion fodder that illuminated how you interpreted the scriptures. And so there were there were eight debates. One of them was on divorce. Now, these debates were really testing two major schools of thought. I think we've referenced them in passing. It's time to reference them again. One dominant school of thought in Jesus's day, about 40 years before Jesus, there were two rabbis. Their name was Shammai and Hillel. And they represented the two ends of a rabbinical discussion, two ends of a rabbinical spectrum. On the one hand, you had Shammai. Now, Shammai, if you asked Shammai about his yoke, what is your yoke? Jesus said, "My yoke is easy; my burden is light. Shamai, What is your yoke? A rabbi's yoke is how they interpret the text, how they interpret the scriptures. It's essentially the lens through which you look—a pair of glasses, so to speak. And those that those that prescription that prescription lens is made up of two commandments. Now, everybody agreed on the first commandment. I believe we've talked about before. What was that commandment, Brent? Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might." Um, and then you had the uh, the second commandment is always the one that was argued about because everybody agreed on the first. But the second commandment really ended up being your filter. It was your lens through which you would interpret the scriptures. And so if you asked Shammai, Shammai, what is your yoke? What are the two greatest commandments would be another way to test a rabbi or to ask them. You'll know Jesus was asked this. We'll talk about it later. What are the two greatest commandments, Shammai? Shammai would have said what, Brent? Love God and keep the commandments. And keep the commandments. Particularly, which commandment dominated Shammai's thought? Sabbath. Obey the Sabbath. Now, that was really his lens, not of Sabbath keeping necessarily, but of obedience. Shammai had a yoke of obedience. He translated the scriptures through what God wants from you. What God wants more than anything else is obedience. So when you read the scripture, interpret it through the lens of obeying God's commandments, because that's what makes God's heart happy. It's not that Shammai would have said, I don't want you to love your neighbor. It's that Shammai would have said, loving your neighbor is only important in as much as it's about obeying God's commandments. So obedience is how I view it. Hillel was on the other side. And Hillel, if you would have asked him about his yoke, Hillel had a yoke of love. He would have said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And what else, Brent? And love your neighbor. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you remember, that sounds a little familiar. Who says that, Brent? Uh, Jesus says that. That would be Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't the first person to say it because he was simply picking Hillel's side in the debate. When people asked him what's the greatest commandments, he took Hillel's side and, in fact, kind of bumped it up some more. But we'll talk about that some other time. But Jesus almost always took Hillel's side. However, on this story today, it's the only instance in the gospel accounts that we have where Jesus takes Shammai's side. Jesus always sides with Hillel, usually takes Hillel and kicks it up a notch, goes even further than Hillel would go. He's even more progressive than Hillel would be, more um, provocative in his stance. But this is the one time where Jesus takes Shammai's perspective. So, what's going to give here? This wrestling match will actually be very important to us if we properly understand a very important teaching. Divorce is obviously very important, and it's a prevalent topic in our world, Brent, your world, my world, all those things in our culture. And dealing with this teaching appropriately greatly impacts people's lives and their hearts.
0: Yeah, at various, I have lots of divorces in my family. As is very common for probably just about any family Absolutely. in America. Yep. Uh, I don't know worldwide if divorce is as common as this is here. I'm not sure about world stats on that. It's a good question. But either way, it's very common. And at various times I have, I've struggled with this and other passages uh, in scripture that, that discuss divorce and just right. Cause we use the teaching very uncomfortable and, and like, yeah, uh, just right. Cause we often
1: use the teaching to just like heap on the shame And the guilt. Maybe directly, but definitely indirectly. We we definitely like that ends up being the result of divorced families that went through this thing and they don't really know where they stand. And the church just kind of heaps it on as they teach on this thing. And so Jesus's first response is the thing that we want to pay attention to first. So um, Pharisees come to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now we'll talk about that in just a moment because that's a that's a kind of a weird question, and yet it is exactly the question they need to be asking as Pharisees. Um, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So classic wedding line there. I know, beautiful. Jesus responds by pointing out that God doesn't want divorce at all. Man shouldn't be separating what God brings together in marriage, but life isn't this easy. So with the point being made, the Pharisees press him for more. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce, also known as a get, by the way, a get in the Hebrew word, G-E-T, get. That's a divorce certificate and send her away jesus replied moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning i tell you that if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery um, what most of us miss as we unpack this brent is the context of the rabbinical argument the positions held by shammai and hillel were taken because of a discrepancy in the text some manuscripts apparently had deuteronomy 24 verse 1 reading that a man may divorce his wife for, in the Hebrew, ervat devar. Ervat davar. However, other manuscripts stated that the man may divorce his wife for davar, ervat. Apparently, some scribe made an error, and we have a rare issue within the text. The Dead Sea Scrolls had one version— And if I understand it correctly, I'm not a manuscript expert, Brent. So if I understand it correctly, it's the Masoretic text, which Christians typically use for um, translating our scriptures. It said another. So one manuscript has ervat devar, and one of them has devar ervat, which, okay. Well, the order of the words makes a huge difference because the word ervat ervat, means nakedness, and the word devar means thing. So if the phrase is devar ervat, then the phrase means a thing of nakedness, which the Hebrew would simply imply sexual immorality. It's a thing of nakedness. It's a sexual thing. Therefore, Shammai claimed that a man was only permitted to divorce his wife for reasons of adultery. Makes sense. He's the witch yoke guy? The obedience. He's the obedience guy. So he's like, you're not allowed to just divorce your wife. The only time that God lets you divorce your wife was for Devar Ervat. However, if it's Ervat Devar... Well, that means a naked thing, which in the Hebrew is very ambiguous and seems to imply any old thing, a naked thing, anything that's out of place, anything at all. And so Hillel took this position and his famous statement recorded in the oral tradition is, and I quote, if she happens to burn your biscuits in anger, you may hand her a get. So you can divorce your wife for burning your biscuits if she burns them in anger. Right now, don't ask me to explain why the progressive. What was his yoke, Brent? The the yoke of love. Yeah, don't ask me to explain how the yoke of love rabbi took this stance. Some historians have suggested he must have had one heck of a home life. Others have suggested that he put the responsibility of loving not on the husband but on the wife. Uh, however, it's also true that Hillel was a rabbi, was the rabbi to argue that the divorce court in in Hillel's teaching, Hillel said the divorce court that you have to use is the one on the opposite side of town. Whichever divorce court is on the opposite side of town is the one that you have to use, according to Hillel, because that means that everybody in town is going to try to talk you out of divorce by the time you get to the court to file the paperwork. I'm going to make you walk through the whole town, Hillel says, in order to do that. So it's not just that Hillel just... It's hard, actually. I I don't actually know how to put these... What did, what was Hillel actually getting at? It's not necessarily as flippant as it initially sounds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nevertheless, Jesus sides with Shammai, and from his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we can deduce that he taught the issue of divorce wasn't about the man in the first place. The issue of divorce was about protecting the woman, which is what the Pharisees completely miss in this question. Remember what their original question was? Can we divorce our wives for any and everything? Like for Devar ervat... Can we just get rid of them for anything, a naked thing?
0: And here's another really interesting uh, passage if Matthew was written in Hebrew.
1: Okay. Oh, yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Oh, by the way, I was going to note from earlier, Dead Sea Scrolls date to about first century AD. Yes. And Masoretic text is like 900s, something like that. Correct. And yet it represents a, that is uh, that is correct,
1: but it represents a, a a different string of manuscripts than the ones that are represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So obviously, Hillel's not working with something that is not going to be around for 800 years. He's not working with the Masoretic text. He's working with a manuscript that is represented by the Masoretic text, if I understand it correctly. And don't quote me on that. Um, so, um, so, so the Pharisees here they're just they're just like the woman is like a prop in their question. When can we get rid of our wives? And Jesus is like, no, no, this this isn't about you and your wives. This is actually about the women in your lives. The issue of divorce was about protecting the woman who in a patriarchal culture would be left with no provision, belonging, or care. It would be pushing her to the boundaries of the culture and forcing her to fend for herself. Now an outsider. Notice Jesus's words from earlier in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, That anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice, by the way, Brent Billings, that Jesus says the man is the one committing the sin. In all of these instances, it's the man that sins either direction because of what they're doing to the woman. The disciples are beside themselves in this teaching. They respond with disbelief that Jesus would suggest the man is held to such a standard. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, or there have been eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So the disciples are wound up because of the, see, Jesus has taken Shammai's position, but he's done it for a very Hillel reason. Jesus isn't taking this position because of obedience to a commandment from God about divorce. Jesus is taking this position about what men are called to do for women in this ancient patriarchal world. He says, you are not allowed to treat them like property that you can just get rid of if she burns your biscuits or if there's a No, 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 You have to actually treat her as a full-fledged human being, which in their patriarchal world, the disciples are like, you got to be kidding me. And Jesus says, no, that is exactly what the call is. This is exactly what the call is. And yes, you can live a single life. This is a hard teaching. Not many can do it. The kingdom is a way of love. Some notes I've written here. The way of love is a hard way. Marriage is the most intense experience of dying to self and serving the other. I have heard and witnessed this passage being used time and time again to condemn divorced parties, mostly women, by the way, in the church, who are on the pushed aside party. We let them know on no uncertain terms that they have disobeyed God through their unacceptable divorce may god help us to redeem the heart of jesus in this teaching who was not trying to establish a moral standard of holiness but a measure of protection for those pushed to the margins in this very conversation it is easy to see jesus to see that jesus recognizes the reality of divorce in this life because we are broken and selfish and stubborn because true reconciliation reconciliation requires how many parties brent two It's got to have two. How often is that going to work out in marriages that are struggling? Having two parties totally on the same page. That's going to be tricky. That's not easy. Divorce will be a reality that we have to deal with, but it should not be taken lightly and it should never be used to oppress other human beings. They should be protected. We should help them find healing and restoration just always has irritated me that this teaching of Jesus gets used to actually commit the very sin that Jesus is actually fighting against with the Pharisees, a mistreatment of the women, especially in divorce situations. And that's not to say that the man's always to blame for a divorce, but it is to say we often take advantage of people in a very vulnerable situation to heap on the shame and the guilt using a teaching that was designed to protect them when they needed to be healed and restored.
0: But nevertheless, we got some more in chapter 19, Brent. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. It feels to me like chapter
1: 19. And I believe chapter 18 was one of those discourses that the Bible Project spoke of. But I'd have to go back and check. It feels like chapter 19, Jesus has an agenda of sorts where he is trying to talk about the importance of people that a religious culture and a worldly culture puts less value on. So in the teaching on divorce, it's about women, a whole group of people that culture pushes aside. And I'm so glad that we've gotten beyond that and grown beyond all of our patriarchy and have learned our lessons 2000 years later. And of course, we don't do that. Brent is smiling at me because he senses my, my sarcasm. And, uh, and then there's the children. Well, children are just children. Like, we've got rabbi business to take care of here. And Jesus, like, again, steps in and says, you don't, like, if you don't see the value of, of human beings just because they're human beings, if you can't see the value of women, if you can't see the value of children... You're missing the whole point of the kingdom of God. So do not hinder them. Let them come for me. Let them come to me, because the kingdom of, of heaven belongs to people like this. It's not just for the Pharisees and the scholars and the trained and the disciples. This is a this is a kingdom that's for all of these people, especially those that have been pushed to the fringe the fringes and have been devalued by so many other people. The mums are in a lot of ways.
0: I almost wonder if this is a response to what we saw in chapter 18, where it's like, is the children he's talking about? Is he talking about the disciples? Is he talking about all of the children in the area? And sure. The, and the disciples thought, oh, well, he's talking about us. Ooh, great point. And then these other kids come in and the disciples are like, no, 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 we got, we got stuff to do here. And she's like, no, 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 no. I meant them too. Right. Absolutely. That would be a great little twist on what their experience could be. Absolutely. The time, the time is a little ambiguous, but it Uh seems like based on the, the flow of the language that we're not that far removed from, right. From the stories of chapter 18,
1: because it could have been easily seen by them in chapter 18. Like the child was a prop, like I'm pulling the child into me and I'm just kind of like using the child to tell you what you need to be like, because I don't want you to stumble. So, and now Jesus is like, "No, no, no, you didn't get it. Like the child was not just a prop the child was a child. And that's why I chose the child is
0: because these are the people that the kingdom of God is made up of. Really great point. I love that. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments, which ones he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Right.
1: I find this interaction to be really interesting. This guy, this rich, this rich man, let's see, what does it say here? A man came up to Jesus. We're told later that he's rich. He's a man of great wealth. It's going to be in verse 22. So this rich man comes up to Jesus. I want to, I want to experience Olam Chava in the Hebrew. I want to experience eternal life. And it seems like he's even like, I don't know exactly how to interpret this whole good thing, but he's kind of working this. Hey, good teacher. And Jesus is like, Hey, Quit making this about me as a teacher, and let's just talk about the thing that we know to be true, God, his words, his commandments. You know, obey the commandments. He responds with, which ones? And I want to know why Jesus lists the ones that he lists, because he goes to the Ten Commandments, and he lists number six, seven, eight, nine. He then jumps back to five and tacks on, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's the one that I would have expected, Brent? I would have expected which one? You'd think number 10 after nine. Absolutely. I would expect six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. Which would have been, what was number 10? Uh, do not covet. Yeah, don't covet. Don't want somebody else's life. And yet he doesn't. And we kind of know where the story is ending. This is a guy who has great wealth. So why is it that Jesus says... And then honor your father and mother. There's actually a great teaching, by the way. We won't be going over it here, but we're going to link it in our show notes. Rabbi David Foreman, years ago, and then he's redone it a few times. So we've linked a whole page that he has at Aleph Beta um, on Ten Commandment teachings. I believe it's the first three towards the top that are the ones that I would want to watch if I were you. Those are the video sessions. The video sessions. And... What Foreman is going to show is how the two tablets are designed to parallel each other. We might have done this briefly in session one. I cannot remember. But he's going to talk about how we got ten commandments, two tablets. It's not four and six. It's actually five and five. Five commandments on the first tablet. Five commandments on the second tablet. And they're parallel each other. In a sense, they're almost like a chiasm but a parallelism, not inverted. So one corresponds to six, two uh to 7 3 to 8 4 to 9 and 5 to 10 and those correspond and they're joined together by a great meta principle so to speak now what i find so interesting is jesus nails every single parallel and then tacks on loving your neighbor but he doesn't he doesn't do number 10 he does its parallel number 5 which foreman will go on to teach if you listen to those teachings that the commandment honor your father and mother is essentially a commandment to be satisfied with the life that you have. That's why it's parallel Is what commandment, Brent? Do not covet. Don't covet. Because if I'm coveting, I'm what? You're not satisfied. You want more. You want, you're saying I should have a better lot than I have now. And why would I not honor my father and mother? Because I wish that I had a different life. And Jesus is saying, don't wish for a different life. Be satisfied with the lot that you have right now in this life. And so here's this man with great wealth. And Jesus is saying, you want to experience eternal life? Obey the commandments. Treat other people well. Be satisfied with the life that you have and love your neighbor as yourself.
0: And his response is what? Go and pick up where you left off, Brent. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And now that I have this
1: back part of the story, I wonder if I get some insight into why Jesus chose the commandments he did. Because if this man has that much wealth, well, the last thing he probably thinks he deals with is what, Brent? He's not coveting. He's not coveting. He has everything. Like he has the life that everybody else covets. So that's not his problem. So he's like, hey, Jesus, I've kept all these things. And I think sometimes we as Christians read it and we're like, oh, man, what a liar. He's such a sinner. He hasn't kept all those commandments. But I I trust him. Like I believe this guy's probably a really righteous, rich dude. Like he's kept the commandments. And he's like, but Jesus, I'm still not experiencing eternal life. Like what more is out there? And Jesus is like, listen, if you're not experiencing eternal life... Then get rid of all that wealth that you have. Sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it doesn't say, by the way, that he didn't do it. It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. I always have wanted to know what the ending of his story was. Did he go away sad, pray it over, think it over, and decide to sell everything and become one of the 72 that followed Jesus? We don't know. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't get rid of any of it. But It's this interesting interaction, and it leads Jesus into the last part of his teaching here in the rest of this chapter. Go ahead.
0: Well, and I wonder, real quick. So the 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 commandment, honor your father and mother. That's not the full commandment. The full commandment is honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. (sighs) That's great. Is his is his life just like like hey you gotta you gotta if you want to live long if you want to have this eternal fulfillment of eternal life this you know
1: right. And I wonder if that's what Jesus was actually getting at originally. Like, I wonder who his father and mother was. I wonder what legacy his dad left behind. I wonder where all this wealth came from. I wonder if there is this thing that he wasn't tapping into that he should have as he honored father and mother and just was missing. And Jesus just pokes at it and finally drives it home. Who knows? But yeah.
0: Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God.
1: Which let's just uh, hold the spell the whole camel eye of the needle thing. There's a whole teaching that the eye of the needle in the gates of Jerusalem is a small door in the side of the gate. And a camel had to get all of the had to take all of the bags off of its humps. It had to get down on its knees because it was the only way it could fit through the quote unquote eye of the needle. And the camel had to shimmy its way on the knees. And so some people have taught this means that a rich person has to get rid of their wealth and get down on their knees in prayer and shimmy their way into the kingdom of God. It is difficult, but it is possible. A wonderfully poetic teaching. It's just not built in any historicity. It's just, there's no, there's no history behind it, but.
0: There's there's no little door? No. Makes for a wonderful little
1: devotional tidbit on the internet, but just not backed up by any good scholarship. That's not how the gates worked back in their day. Nevertheless, it means really what it says. Harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Darn near
0: impossible, which is is what's going to spark the disciples' response. Go ahead. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first.
1: And of course, whenever Jesus opens his mouth, one of the questions I always want to teach myself and our listeners to ask is what, Brent? What is he referencing? Yeah, there's got to be something in the text, right? And I don't know uh, if this is it. But one of the only places that you find brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers and wives all in the same story is the story of Isaac and Rebekah. You might remember the story of the sower, and we talked about the story of a hundredfold being the story of Isaac. So is one of Jesus's kind of remez teachings here as he talks to his disciples, especially from a family that had great wealth, Abraham, Isaac, these are families that had great wealth. And him saying, listen, you, which fits, if it is the right remes, fits the whole interaction he's had with the rich rich young man here. Because he, he tells the rich young man, basically, love other people, be hospitable, be radically generous with all of your stuff, which is exactly what who and who did, Brent? Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. And so I wonder if... Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to deal with wealth, be radically generous, radically hospitable, radical in your love for others, and you'll be about the mission of God. That's the thing that God's people have always been about, which is the same for you, disciples. If you want to be about the kingdom of God, it is not going to have anything to do with your bank account. You may be poor. You may have given up everything to follow me, but you better be about radical hospitality if you want to sit on those throne thrones and join me. And again, we always make this so mechanical and so literal. They're going to sit on 12 thrones. There's going to be 12 thrones in heaven. They're all going to judge. Like, what are they going to judge? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to judge you? Not what the picture Jesus is painting is. Jesus is saying there is going to come a day where we are going to put the world back together. That is what judgment. If you remember Shafat, Shafatim, Shofatim. The book of Judges, Shofatim, Judges, Shofatim, to judge, Shafat, to judge meant to bring Mishpat, where he talked about Mishpat and being uh, tied to the root word for Shafat, Mishpat and Shafat. If you want to put the world back together, that's what we're going to be doing in the age to come in eternal life. We're going to be putting the world back together. If you want to be about that, you're going to have to be about radical hospitality, not just about wealth, not just about getting the rewards that you want, but about joining me in putting the world back together.
0: There you have it, Brent. That's the whole reason we're doing this thing. It is. Putting the world back together.
1: Shalom to chaos. And by the way, I always forget to bring this up. But at the root of all of this, every session, Brent, every episode, how many episodes are the episode one, like 121? This is 122. 122, 122 episodes in, and I forgot to mention it all the time, but at the root of all of this is going all the way back to the original premise of we've got to do what? Trust the story. We've got to trust the story. How will you ever sell everything that you have and give, give it to the poor and come follow Jesus if you don't trust the story? How will you ever do any of the things that, how will you ever forgive last episode, the unforgiving servant, if you don't trust the story? All of this is rooted in something we started the whole journey out at in the beginning of session one. And I forget to bring it up all the time, but so critical that we remember trusting the story is what allows us, frees us, releases us to do, how are you going to go through divorce and take care of, how are you going to go through marriage and take care of your wife? How does Jesus's teaching on divorce even work if it's not rooted in trusting the story? That is where we get rid of all this stuff that we hang on to out of self-preservation, all that stuff that causes us to hurt other people. We'll never be able to do any of the things that Jesus calls us to do if we haven't learned how to trust the story. And somehow it's all connected to taking a day off and having a Shabbat because that's what tells me the truth over and over and over again and gets me ready to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And now I'm preaching, so you better shut me
0: down. <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone wants to stop that. Anyway, uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.